All right. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, welcome to All Nations. My name's uh, Michael. I'm on staff here, and it is such a joy uh, for us to be able to worship together on this Christmas Sunday. It only happens, I think it's once every seven years, six, once every six years, perfect, uh, to actually worship on Christmas Day, line that up with Christmas Sunday. Uh, it's fantastic. So we're really, really excited about that. And usually on Christmas Sunday, you hear a message from one of the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and, and it will key in on the miraculous virgin birth of, of Jesus. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear about the, the wise men and the, the frankincense and the myrrh, and there's no room at the inn, and, and all of, of, of that beautiful Jesus uh, birthing story. Uh, but today, we're actually going to be a bit unconventional, and we're going to finish our series in the life of Abraham. Uh, so we've been going through Genesis, and this has been a seven-part series through the life of Abraham. And the reason why we're doing this is not because I'm too lazy to prepare like a special Christmas Sunday, uh, but because as we were planning this series out uh, months ago, and when we realized that we were going to land on Christmas Sunday here at Genesis chapter 22, um, I just got really excited. And I thought that there was a beautiful, unique connection between what Abraham has to go through uh, in the testing of his faith and his son Isaac and um, the heart of God uh, sending his son Jesus Christ uh, to be our savior. And so I think there's a great tie-in. Hopefully it works. If not, you can shoot me an email and let me know it didn't work. Um, If you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to our passage today, uh, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 to 18. It's also going to go up on the screen if you want to follow along there. And um, I'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his matchless and inerrant word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." because you have obeyed my voice. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage, it's often called the test of Abraham. 
And upon hearing it, you can understand why it's known this way, why it's described this way as the test of Abraham. In our passage today, Abraham's faith and his devotion is being tested like to the max as Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his one and only beloved son, Isaac. Describing this passage, a theologian named Derek Kidner, he wrote this. He said, the test, instead of breaking him, brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. Brings him to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. I love that imagery. That here in Genesis 2, as God leads Abraham atop Mount Moriah, Abraham is standing at the summit, not just of a mountain, but of his life with God his journey with God, his faith walk with God. Now, before we get into this message, I actually wanna give a brief overview of Abraham's life so that we can recall together how we got to this summit. How did he get to this point where, where he's, he's going up a mountain with his son, planning to slaughter him, planning to offer him as a burnt offering, especially if this is your first time here at All Nations and you're like, this doesn't feel like a Christmas Sunday message, or you're kind of bummed out that you're in part seven of a seven-part series through the life of Abraham, uh, I, I just want to recap kind of what we've been learning over the last six weeks. And it's just a, a quick story of, of Abraham and his journey with God. Well, when um, Abraham was 75 years old, he was living with his family in a land called Haran. And God called him to leave his home, to leave his father's house and go into the land of Canaan. Canaan is, is known as the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And so Abraham's father had passed away. And so he hears God call him out and he goes. And God promises to make Abraham a great nation in Genesis 12, to bless him and bless all the nations through him, all right? So it's an amazing call, amazing promise, amazing invitation. And so Abraham obeys. He gets into the land of Canaan, but there's a famine. And soon after he's like, you know what? I gotta take care of my family. I know God told me to come to Canaan, but we're gonna go to Egypt. So he goes down to Egypt. His wife is beautiful and desirable. And so to save his own skin, he actually tells everyone, Sarai is my sister, not my wife. Like married men don't do that. That's not cool. Um, and so the Egyptians are like, cool, she's your sister. Sarai is taken uh, to be one of Pharaoh's wives, right? This is almost ruining the entire plan of God to make Abraham a great nation and bless the nations through him. Abraham's about to lose his wife, right? to the king of Egypt. Uh, well, God intervenes miraculously. God intervenes miraculously. And so Abraham and his wife, Sarah or Sarai and their family, they all leave Egypt. They leave Egypt wealthy actually. And they go back into the promised land and they're flourishing so much that Abraham's flocks and Lot, his nephew's flocks, they cannot coexist in the land that they're living in. So there's that famous story where Abraham, Abraham's like, you know what, Lot, you choose wherever you wanna go. You go right, I'll go left, right? You go north, I'll go south. I'll just go opposite of you. And so Lot looks upon the land and he takes what looks to be the best land for himself, right? And it's actually the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're all like, ooh, that's not a good choice, right? Well, Lot ends up going there. Abraham ends up going towards the promised land again. Well, while Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, those cities gang up with a bunch of other cities and they go to war against four other kings, well, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot's side, they all lose and they get taken captive. And when Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been taken captive by these other kings, he goes on this amazing rescue mission. And it's, it's pretty amazing because Abraham and just his herdsmen and his servants, they go to war against these kings, but they win. They win by the grace of God and the miraculous hand of God. Uh, they do this um, and... Let me see, where am I? I wasn't looking at my notes, and so I kind of like lost my place. Um, so they end up there, and they've experienced, Abraham's experienced amazing blessings from God. He's seen miracles. He's been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, but there was a huge void in Abraham's heart, despite being wealthy, despite having so many things. And the void is, he has no offspring. 
He has no offspring. He has no child of his own. He was 75 years old when God called him out. His wife was 65. There's a 10 year gap between Abraham and Sarah and God promises them offspring, promises to make them a nation. They go to Egypt, still no offspring. They come back, still no offspring. They defeat some kings, still no offspring. And this becomes the dominant question in Abraham's journey. Will God provide? And Abraham's waiting for God to make good on his promise. Then in Genesis 15, Abraham's still struggling. He's still struggling with the fact that he has no offspring. And uh, God makes a covenant with him, a famous covenant. And God promises to make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. Verse six of Genesis 15 famously declares, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis 16, after 10 years have passed without a child, Abraham and Sarah, they decide, you know what? We're gonna take matters into our own hands. And Abraham fathers a child, not with Sarah, but with Sarah's slave. Her name was Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave they picked up while in Egypt. And Sarah's like, you know what? I'm barren, have my, have my maidservant, have my slave. They do that, they father a son. Uh, they, yeah, they have a child named Ishmael. Uh, and they think, okay, Abraham's okay. I guess Ishmael can be my heir. I guess God will make the, the nation, my nation, through Ishmael. Well, that wasn't the plan. Uh, there's a huge problem there. There's conflict between Sarah and Hagar. And um, yeah, there's a whole mess there. You can read that in Genesis. The conflict is resolved, but it's very clear that Ishmael is not the solution to Abraham's lack of offspring. More years pass by. Abraham is now north of 86 years old. And again, at the age of 99, God is renewing his covenant with Abraham. And this time, not just with words, uh, but with a sign. A sign of circumcision is given. Abraham, his uh, son Ishmael, and, and you know, all of his men servants, they all get circumcised. Abraham even changes his name from the father of many to the father of nations. That's where we go from Abram to Abraham. And, uh, and then at that time, God promises that in one year, you're gonna have a son. In one year, at the age of 99, you're gonna have a son. And your wife, Sarah, at the age of 89, is going to bear your son for you. Now, Abraham was like a man of faith, right? I mean, he left everything to go into a foreign land. Um, and he was believing God for so many years. I mean, 24 years following God. But finally, at 99, with an 89-year-old wife, and God's like, you know what, you guys are gonna get pregnant the old-fashioned way, um, and you're gonna have a son next year. You know what Abraham does? He falls to the ground and starts laughing. He falls straight to the ground and starts laughing. And the same thing happens with Sarah. When Sarah hears that she is going to have a child, she laughs. I mean, she's just like, there's no way. Laugh out loud to the point where the angel is like, you laughed. And she's like, no, I didn't. She's like, yes, you did. She's like, yeah, I did, right? <laughs> And this is what Sarah joked. I mean, she was mocking herself, mocking her husband. She said this, she goes, like, after I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure, right? She's talking about, you know, their sex life at 99 and 89 is not fantastic, but she said it, I'm just repeating it. Abraham was 99, his body was as good as dead, and Sarah had actually ceased. I mean, by 99 you do. She ceased the way of women, like that monthly cycle, at 89, you don't have that anymore. Practically speaking, it was impossible for them to bear children. So they laughed. They said, God, you're funny. But you know what God says? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You laugh at me. You laugh at my word. You laugh at my promises. Answer me this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In the following year, Sarah miraculously does have a child. And they name him Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laughter. It means laughter because they realized that like, yeah, it, God is actually laughing at us, right? In the sense where we were laughing at God, believing that like he could never, and God had the final laugh. And so he has this great name. His name means laughter. God gave Abraham a son of his own. 25 years after the promise was made, against all odds, against our own reason, against our rationale, against what we would understand about our bodies and, and what is possible, God gave Abraham and Sarah a son of their own. Ishmael has been sent away. God still blessed Ishmael. He still took care of him. But Isaac is now the one and only beloved son of Abraham. Isaac has become a young boy. 
He's old enough to carry firewood on his back and Abraham loves him with all of his heart. That's where we are today. That's our passage. That's everything from Genesis 12 leading up to Genesis 22 in broad strokes. The title of today's message is The Father's Devotion. The Father's Devotion. And I wanna uh, unpack three things for us from our passage. Uh, The first point I want to make is uh, we wanna look at the test of devotion. The test of devotion, because we see here that Abraham is tested. It is a challenging, weighty, daunting test. And we wanna unpack that. The second thing we wanna look at is the display of devotion. Okay, Uh, Abraham is tested. How does he demonstrate devotion to God? Devotion as a father, right? The third thing we're gonna look at is the response. The response to devotion. So the test, the display, and the response all to devotion. I'm not the most creative person in the world, but I keep it simple so that our note-taking and and we can all track together. Well, question. Um, Have you guys ever been tested by God? If I asked you in a personal conversation, when is the last time or what is the most memorable test you have experienced by God, right? What did he ask you to give up? What did he challenge you to take on in that test? One pastor once wrote, uh, character is both developed and revealed by tests and all of life is a test. All of life is a test. Do you like hearing that? When I was younger, I did. When I was more zealous, but now I don't. I don't like the idea that all of life is a test. I personally don't like to be tested. That's why I got my master's in divinity. I'm done with school. People are like, Pastor Mike, you can get a PhD? I'm like, no, no, I'm done. I'm done. I don't like to be tested relationally as well. Every once in a while, my wife will ask, do you have something to tell me? You know what she's doing? Testing me. I do have things to tell her. I got a thousand things that I should probably confess and tell her, but I don't want to. So I'll be like, you want to clarify? You know, like, but she's testing me and it's uncomfortable and I want to change the subject, right? We don't necessarily like the idea of being tested, especially when someone's like, hey, all of life is a test. That is scary. That's stressful. That's daunting. But think back to your test. Perhaps you felt that as a a test when when you passed up an opportunity that offered you better pay at work or a promotion, but maybe you felt like that wasn't God's will for you. Maybe that wasn't the right fit. Or maybe you didn't want to leave Southern California like so many people, right? Or maybe you felt a test when you you chose to go on summer missions over that internship you got. Or maybe you you chose to go on summer missions over that vacation in Hawaii or Mexico or Europe or Korea. Uh, I just came back from Korea. It was fantastic. Um, And uh, you're like, oh, am I going to use my paid time off for missions? Am I gonna give up my resume building internship for missions? That could be a real test. That could be a real challenge. Or finally, maybe you feel that test every time the offering basket comes around on Sundays. Like, do I give or do I save? I got bills to pay, I'm in debt. Oh, money's tight. Ah, the test, right? Well, we don't pass the offering basket here at All Nations, so we are ANC guilt-free, but... um, but that's real as well. You know, um, money, giving is difficult. Generosity, stewardship, tithing, it's not easy. As your pastor, I don't presume that it's automatic. And for many of us, financial stewardship is a test, right? It's a bit childish, but I remember the first time I really felt tested by God. I mean, really felt tested by God. I was in high school and like so many high school stories, it involved a girl. It involved a girl, it was my senior year. And uh, in my junior, senior year, God was like doing something very powerful in my life, really challenging me and transforming me. And so I wanted to go from this kind of Sunday Christian, this person who just went to church because their parents dragged them along to like owning my own faith. And I was like, I wanna be a disciple. I wanna be like a follower, a, a seven day a week Christian. That was like kind of how I was thinking. And so God was really working in my life and I wanted to live a committed life of Christ. But there was a girl right? Really cute Hoppa girl that came along and that I got really close to. If you don't know what a Hoppa is, Hoppa is half Asian, half Caucasian. And the stereotype is they're always really cute, right? Uh, Well, this one really was, right? And uh, we shared a lot of common interests. I played soccer. She played soccer. Uh, We went to the same school, things like that. Um, And so we actually started to develop feelings for each other. And did I mention she was cute? Um, But there was a major hang up. 
there's a major hangup. She wasn't Christian. Uh, she wasn't Christian. And the more we shared our values, the more we talked about our worldviews, um, I realized that we might have had romantic chemistry, but not true compatibility, right? I made that realization, 18 years old. Not bad, right, guys? Yeah. <laughs> Now, even though the Bible doesn't forbid Christians from dating non-Christians, this is not what the talk is about. Um, I felt that this was a test from God. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was minor, it was juvenile, nothing compared to Abraham, but this was a test for me in my season. And the question that I sensed God was asking me was, Michael, are you willing to give up a relationship with this girl so that you can pursue a deeper relationship with me? See, that? like I, I heard that. Over and over again, Michael, are you willing to give up this great, fun relationship with this girl to go deeper with me? Would you give up pursuing her to pursue me? That was a test. I wrestled with this question for weeks, for weeks. Um, and I ended things with a girl. And I ended things with a classic, like, God does not want me to date you. And she was so upset. She was like so confused. And I think she hated my God even more because like, you know, he told me to like end things with her. And so she's like, what? Um, uh, so it's terrible. Once again, this isn't a talk on dating. Don't take any of that advice. That's just my story. My lighthearted, personal, like first test with God. Um, well, in our passage today, we see that God is testing Abraham. And it's way beyond a teenage romance. Right? It's way beyond a job opportunity, a school opportunity. It's much greater than even a financial question, right? A financial question that we might face. In the passage today, we are told that God tested Abraham with the ultimate test. Will you sacrifice your son, Isaac? In verse two, God tells him explicitly, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Church, this is utterly shocking. How could God command Abraham to sacrifice his son? How could God ask this of any father? Right? I mean, that seems brutal. That seems so inhumane. That seems so ungodlike for God to say, take your beloved son and sacrifice him. Difficult for us to even swallow, let alone Abraham, after all he's been through, after 25 years of trusting, 25 years of Abraham leaving home, going to Canaan, down to Egypt, back up to Canaan, going into war, and like all of these crazy experiences for 25 years, finally, God gives him a son, and now God's about to take him away. Is God really going to do that? Abraham had already sent his other son, Ishmael, away. And now he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac was supposed to be the child of promise. Isaac was supposed to be the one from whom Abraham would become a great nation that would bless all of the nations. Abraham's hopes were literally about to go up in smoke when he offers Isaac up as a burnt offering. And God knew this. God knew this. God knew how precious Isaac was to Abraham. On sheer volume alone, if you read our passage, the word son dominates. We just read 18 verses, 12 times the word son comes up. Your only son, the son whom you love, right? Abraham says, my son. Over and over again, that word comes up. Isaac is, is like the centerpiece of, of this passage. God refers to Isaac as Abraham's one and only beloved Son, church, can you imagine what's going through Abraham's mind? I mean, if God comes to you and says, take your son, the one whom you love, go to Mount Moriah, I'll show you where, and you're gonna offer him up as a sacrifice. I mean, Abraham must've been thinking, was, was that really God speaking to me or was that my mind playing tricks on me? Right? Was I hearing God or is that my imagination? Or my conscience, or maybe even, oh, maybe that's not God. Maybe that's the devil. You know, maybe the devil's trying to deceive me, undo God's plans, undo God's work in my life. If ever there was a moment for Abraham to doubt the voice of God, this was it, right? If there's ever a moment for Abraham to second guess and be like, God, can we, can we have a sidebar and like talk about this? Because I don't think you meant what you just said. Edmund Clowney, he's another pastor that wrote on this passage. This is what he says about this passage. God tested Abraham with a command that appeared to make faith utterly 
irrational. If, you, if it looks irrational to you, it, it, there's, it's right. God's doing that intentionally. What would God be asking? It was one thing to wait beyond all reason for the fulfillment of the promise. It was another thing, another against all reason to destroy with his own hand the promise that had been fulfilled. You see that? What's harder, for Abraham to wait 25 years to get a son or for Abraham to undo that 25 years of waiting, undo that reward and that fulfillment with with obedience to this command? That must have been so much harder for Abraham to comprehend. Abraham's devotion to God was being tested against his devotion to his own son. Abraham's devotion was being tested here, but I wanna say that's not the only test that we see in our passage today. Abraham was not the only one being tested here. In the testing of Abraham, we actually also see the testing of God. We see the testing of God. Do you remember God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15? Um, Abraham is commanded to split a bunch of animals. So they take like a ram and they take doves and they take like, you know, sheep and cows and they just split them in half, right? And make like a soul train aisle type thing. Abraham knows exactly what's going on and he's expecting to swear an oath to God, expecting to swear his allegiance to God most high. But you know what happens at that covenant? Abraham doesn't pass through, God does. God passes through those animals. And by doing so, in that covenant ceremony, God was swearing upon himself that he would bless Abraham. That God was swearing upon himself, his own life, his own existence, his own name, his own dignity and glory, that I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will give you offspring and I'm gonna bless the nations through you. Because he passed through those dead animal carcasses, what God was actually telling Abraham is, I will die before I break my promise to you. So strong, so strong. Do you see how here at this point, if God breaks his promise, he's being tested right here at Moriah. It's not just Abraham's devotion that's being tested. We see here the testing of God's devotion to Abraham. Was God going to allow his promises to Abraham to be broken? It wasn't just Abraham's son on the line here. In Isaac is the future of all of Israel. If you keep reading through the Old Testament, all of Israel comes from this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you end it with Isaac on Mount Moriah, there is no Israel. And if you end it with Isaac on Mount Moriah, there's no hope for the nations. There is no blessing for Israel and there's no blessing for all the nations. The test is on. Abraham's being tested, but even more so God is being tested. In the following verses, we see the display of devotion. How are they going to live that out? How are they going to express their devotion? In verse three, we see that though his heart must have been torn within him, Abraham obeys. Abraham obeys. And there is this crazy detailed story of what exactly Abraham does. The story slows down so that we can really track with what is going on uh, as Abraham takes his son up the mountain. Verse three tells us he wakes early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He takes his son and two of his male servants and they set out towards Moriah. Three days after journeying, what he does is he separates from his two male servants. He's like, you guys stay here. Me and my son, we're gonna go worship. We're gonna go worship. So they go towards the mountain. They go up the mountain alone. And when they arrive, Abraham builds an altar. He arranges the wood. He ties up his son who's still a boy, which explains how a hundred-year-old guy can tie a kid up. He's still a boy. Then he lays him on top of the wood. And he raises his knife to slaughter his son. There's no dialogue here. There's no like, God, can we talk about this? This is getting real. Can you just, can we eject? Can we audible? There's no dialogue. He's just obeying. He's displaying his devotion to God. And as he raises his knife to slaughter his son, in the nick of time, the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham. And in verse 12, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Epic story. I mean, we can like just track and and paint that picture in our minds. What we have to ask is, why did Abraham obey God? 
Why did he do it? It seems so insane. Why did he display his devotion to God in such a radical manner? Who in their right mind would bind their only son? Who in their right mind would lay him on an altar of wood? Who on their, in their right mind would raise up a knife ready to slay, not an annoying child, right? Not a devil child, but his beloved child, ready to slay him. You see, church, to understand what Abraham did, we have to first understand why he did it. You can't just think, oh man, Abraham, man of action, man of obedience, radical faith, does whatever God says. We gotta be like him. That will actually get us nowhere. That, that will lead us to a life that you do not wanna try and live. If you wanna understand what he did, you have to ask, why did he do it? We have, to, we have to understand why he did it. And our passage is full of answers. But let me give you the answer. I'm gonna go and like just map it out for you. It's called the take-home truth. That's what pastors in their sermons are supposed to always deliver. So here's the take-home truth. Why did Abraham obey like this? And the answer is this. Abraham was able to display radical devotion to God because he believed in God's absolute devotion to him. Okay. Abraham was able to display radical devotion to God because he believed in God's absolute devotion to him. Where do we see this? All throughout the passage, we see hints of what's motivating Abraham. And what I love is the fact that it's not just religious rhetoric. It's not just a bunch of like, hey, just give everything to God, right? I mean, we hear that in the church sometimes. We hear this like, oh, we have to risk it all for God. Like that's genuine faith. When you just dive in, I love the fact that it's not like, oh, Abraham, just, just close your eyes and believe because it's blind faith. That's like, that's really what God wants. Like I personally loathe and despise the rhetoric of blind faith. We don't see it here in Abraham, right? You don't even hear this idea of like, oh, God deserves everything. So just give it all up for him. Or that wonderful song that we're all familiar with. Oh, God gives and takes away. That wasn't the logic. Abraham wasn't like, oh, God gave me Isaac. I guess he can take it away, right? That, 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 that's not what's driving Abraham here. You know what it is? You know why he does it? What's driving Abraham's devotion and obedience is his belief that God will provide, that God is his provider, that God will make good on his promise. Even if Abraham doesn't understand how it's gonna happen. He doesn't have a blueprint. He doesn't know when and where and exactly how God is going to provide. He just knows he will. He believes that God is, is his provider and, and, and he's already had decades of trusting God. He's already had decades of seeing the Lord's provision in his life. When Lot got in trouble, God provided. When his wife was in trouble, with Pharaoh, like going to be married to Pharaoh and belong to another, God provided. When he was in trouble and his life was in danger and he's going up against kings he has no business going to battle with, God provided. His life was an experience, a journey, not of Abraham's provision, but of God's provision in his life. And so in this moment, he was able to trust God to provide again. In verse five, Abraham tells the two servants where they split up. And after three days, they're about to, you know, like go up the mountain. And like, you guys stay here. This is what he says. He, sa he tells the two young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. All right, that's what he believes. He tells them, he says, hey, we're going up the mountain. We're gonna worship and we're gonna come back. We're gonna come back. Right. In verse seven and eight, we hear the first exchange between Isaac and Abraham. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And Isaac's a young boy, but he realized something's missing. Okay, we're about to worship. And he's seen family worship all the time. They build the altar, they lay out the wood and they bring the animal to sacrifice. And so Isaac asks his dad, Abraham, behold, the fire and the wood, and dad, I even see the knife in your sheath, probably. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Is Abraham just telling Isaac a white lie? Is he just lying just to like kind of calm down? Don't worry, we're gonna go up the mountain. You're actually the burnt offering, right? Psych, right? Or... 
Does, God, does Abraham actually believe what he's saying? Do you see that? Abraham believed that God would provide. And I love the fact that it's not just, oh, Abraham isn't just saying God's gonna provide us for the, the lamb. No, he says, God's going to provide for himself the burnt offering. Why? Why must God provide for himself and not just for us? Because God's honor, his word, his promises, his covenant is on the line. Once again, it's not just Abraham being tested. God is being tested. And so God has to, to uphold his truth, uphold his word and his promise. So he has to provide for himself the burnt offering because his faithfulness was on the line. And this isn't just a charade. Abraham's not just bluffing. He's not like, hey guys, just stick around here. We're gonna come back. But in reality, I'm the only one that's gonna make it back. You see how like there's something there or he's not just telling Isaac like this kind of bluff and this charade, don't worry, like the, lamb, the, the lamb's gonna be there. You're not, yeah, don't worry about it. Just, just keep walking and keep those sticks on your back and, and we're good. Um, I believe he was fully prepared to sacrifice his son. See, I think a lot of times we read this and we're like, Abraham was not going to do it. You know, we, we would imagine that. We imagine Abraham lifts the knife. He's like, are you sure? And he just kind of slow, anytime God, right? Slow motion, waiting for God to intervene. No, I absolutely believe Abraham was ready to slay his son. I absolutely believe it. But at the same time, we see Abraham absolutely believed in the provision of God in the provision of God. This wasn't one of those fake, we're going home threats that parents give their kids at Disneyland to get them to behave. Parents lie to their kids all the time, right? Especially when they're younger and they're toddlers and they're misbehaving. What do they always say? We're gonna go home if you don't stop. And then they don't stop and they don't go home because Disneyland's too expensive, right? <laughs> you're not gonna like throw away like all, all that money just because you know, you just tell them to stop. And parents do this all the time. We see this in our lives. I actually just did this uh, the other week. We, we just went down to San Diego for a college retreat and it was fantastic. Uh, but there was a lull in the afternoon because it was game time. And if you've ever gone to a retreat or spent time in a church, church games are lame, aren't they? Like I'm a pastor and I confess it and I loathe game time. But like you have to because there's nothing else to do, right? I mean, that's like what you do in the afternoon after lunch, before evening worship. You gotta play some games, right? And, uh, you know, all the college students, they're millennials, they're too cool for school. And so um, our students are trying to rally everyone and organize, but no one's paying attention. Everyone's a little lethargic and they're like, ah, whatever. And I was like, you know what? I've been planning this for weeks, right? Because we're in San Diego. That's like the, 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 the hub, the Mecca for Mexican food, right? And then there's this fantastic place called Oscars, right? Oscars Mexican seafood. Go on Yelp. Their headquarters has like 1,200 reviews, not 12,000, 1,200 reviews, four and a half stars. It's crazy, right? And the night before we went to Phil's and they're like, oh, everyone to Phil's was fantastic. Uh, and then after worship, we went to Vallarta's, which is another fantastic Mexican restaurant. And so we're all rolling deep together. Everyone's having fun. And then I said, you know what, guys? Top five winners, go to Oscars. Bottom five losers, go to Taco Bell. And you know what they did? Boom, they lined up. All the groups were so organized and they were ready to go, right? And they're ready to compete because no one wants to go to Taco Bell. They all want to go to Oscars, right? And then I heard murmurs. You know what they said? They said, Pastor Mike, you're not really going to do it. You're going to let us all go to Oscars. And I was like, no, you're not. And you know what? They didn't. Yeah. But I, I relented. Uh, they didn't have to go to Taco Bell. They went to like Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And Chipotle. But for college students, that's basic right? Oscars is special. Um, but there was this idea. They're like, Mike, you're bluffing, right? You're bluffing. You don't mean it. And I was like, no, I'm not bluffing. Watch me, right? And, 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 I, don't, and I don't think Abraham was bluffing. Abraham was absolutely prepared to go all the way in his obedience to God. How do we know that? Because right now, all we're doing is assuming. We're just hoping that Abraham was for real. You know how we know that? Because the author is in scripture. The author of Hebrews tells us he was ready. Hebrews 11 gives us great insight into the motivation and the heart of Abraham. This is what he writes in Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac by faith. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He was doing it. He was in the act of offering up his son. He was gonna do it in faith. Why? 
Verse 19 tells us everything. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you see verse 19? Abraham believed, I can slay Isaac here on top of Mount Moriah in full obedience to God. And even if he dies here, my God is sovereign over life and death. My God is the kind of God who can, who can raise Isaac up from the grave. Why does he know that? Why does he believe that? Because the fact that Isaac's even here, it just shows that God is miraculous, that nothing is impossible for him. And so Abraham was fully able to obey God all the way and fully able to believe that God would make good on his word, giving him a son, fulfilling his promises here. And after the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham, stopping him from slaying his son, Abraham saw a ram nearby caught in a thicket by his horns. He took the ram and he offered it in place of his son. Church, Abraham's devotion to God, his commitment to God, his trust in God, his faith in God led him up the mountain and it prepared him to slay his son. He was that devoted to God. But God's devotion to Abraham was displayed in the fact that he provided a substitute for Isaac. Do you see how devoted God was to Abraham? How devoted God was to his promise and his covenant to him? As God provided the ram in Isaac's place, God was proving and displaying his devotion. Isaac was spared, but that ram was not. That ram died in the place of Isaac. That ram died and was slaughtered instead of Isaac. Well, that's the gospel message today. That's the Christmas message for us today. Jesus Christ, who came as the Lamb of God, came to, to take away the sins of the world, not just with a hello and a hug, not just with a witty and intelligent, wise teaching. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world as the Lamb of God who was slain, slain on Calvary's cross. Let me read a couple of scripture passages in the New Testament that really connect what Abraham and Isaac experienced on Mount Moriah with Jesus Christ and his work. Romans 8.31, this is what Paul writes. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, who is that he? It's God, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham was tested. He was willing to slay his son, but God spared him. God spared Isaac out of his love and devotion and faithfulness to him. But you know who God did not spare? God did not spare his own son. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did God do? Did he rush down and rescue him? Did he send a thousand angels to crush the Roman empire and rescue his son? You know what the father did? He turned his face away. You know what the father did? He poured out his wrath upon his son so that you and I would be spared. Jesus was not spared. He was the lamb of God slain for our sins. That's the father's heart. And the moment the father commissioned his son, he said, Jesus, you're gonna go. You're gonna go into the world. You're gonna become fully man. You're gonna be born in a manger. He was commissioning his son to death. He was not sparing his son. John, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a beautiful, beautiful verse in gospel truth. You know what propitiation means? It means wrath-bearing substitute. Wrath-bearing substitute is propitiation. And in the same way, the ram took the place of Isaac, Jesus took our place on the cross. Church, Christmas is about the birth of Christ. 
Christmas is about the miracle of the virgin birth. It is, you know, we want goodwill and peace to men. Christmas is like the light of the world coming into our darkness. It's all of that. But to understand the fullness of Christmas, you have to go to the cross. To understand the fullness of Christmas, you have to go to the cross. We must understand that our Savior was born to die. Imagine that. God did not spare his son. Jesus came to take your place. That's the Christmas message. That's the gospel message that Jesus was sent and he was not spared so that we could, so that we could be spared, that we could have life. That's God's devotion to Abraham through that ram in place of Isaac. And that's God's devotion to us, even better than a ram. Because that ram couldn't actually save Isaac. It just took his place in the moment on Mount Moriah. But what Jesus has done stands eternally. It lasts forever. Jesus is so much greater a substitute than that ram for Isaac. Jesus took your place. And when we trust in Jesus, when we accept Jesus, we receive life. We live through him. So how do we respond to this devotion? See, this story is not about Abraham's devotion to God, right? If that's how we read it, I hope that today corrected it. It's not all about Abraham passing his test and proving his faith and proving his worth to God. That is not the right way to read it. In fact, it's God demonstrating his devotion to Abraham. It's God demonstrating his devotion to you. See, if we think that, man, the point of this story is we gotta be like Abraham. We gotta risk everything like Abraham. We gotta live on the razor's edge. We gotta be so sacrificial. We gotta be so radical. We have to be so committed and passionate like Abraham that we gotta be able to, to risk it all. Then we're really like Abraham. Then we're living a life that God will be pleased by and honored by. You know what happens to us? We get crushed. We get crushed. We get bitter. We get guilty. Because what happens that morning when you're like, you know what? I don't want to lay it all on the line for Jesus. No, I don't want to open my, empty out my wallet for somebody else. Or no, I don't want to like volunteer all of my free time and all of my energy at church or for the sake of others. And no, I don't, you know, like, like even me as a pastor, I struggle with that. Am I going to lay everything, risk everything and live as if everything is a life or death test before God? That's exhausting. And it'll crush me and it'll crush you because we will all fail. We will be less like Abraham, more like this world and we will feel so guilty. But that's not the point. How did Abraham respond to the devotion of God? How was he able to do so much and be so radical? Not because it all came from him. Abraham wasn't the source. How did he do it? Out of the Lord's provision. At every moment, he says, God will provide. God's gonna provide for himself. We'll be back. God's gonna provide. I'm gonna name this place Jehovah Jireh. God is my provider, right? That, that, that's, that was the framework. That is how Abraham operated. He lived the life of, of radical faith, not because he himself was the source and the answer, but because God provided. God gave him the strength that he needed. God gave him the faith that he needed. God gave him the energy and the motivation and the strength, yeah, the ability to live that life. Likewise, we may be asked this morning not to simply give everything up for God because that's the Christian thing to do. No, no would you consider how to live out of God's provision? Would you consider how you can believe and accept God's devotion to you? Friend, do you believe that? Do you know that? God's not here waiting for you to be devoted to him. He's not saying you worship me, you give everything up for me. No, he's actually here wanting you to understand his devotion to you how much he loves you, how much he's given you graciously all things. He has not spared anything from you. He gave you his son. If you believe that, can you trust? Would you receive in your heart the fact that God is so devoted to you? And when we do that, we can actually give. Then we can actually serve. Then we can actually go. We have, we have a couple uh, who we just commissioned in our early service, uh, Doug and Esther Nobles. They are going. They're going to Greece. 
They're going to Israel and they're serving uh, refugees from Syria and Iran and the Middle East. Why? Not because they are such supernatural, spiritual, amazing people, but because they believe that God provides. They believe that God is their provider and he's commissioned them and given everything that they need to be his messengers. That's the Christmas message today, that God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. Would you accept? Would you believe? Let's pray together. Lord, Lord, we, we come to you with a lot of guilt because we can imagine for ourselves so many tests, spiritual tests that we have failed. Tests where you wanted us to go and, and be kind and, and gracious and generous with somebody and we ignored them. We are so aware of all of these tests, invitations for us to spend time with you and to pray and be in your word and be part of your community. And, and we, we don't, we turn it down. We choose our own paths and we choose our own ways. And so Lord, if all of our lives are a test before you, we wanna confess that we've all fallen short, that we've all failed this test. Lord, our burdens are, are heavy. Our failures are great. But we thank you that on this Christmas day, you told us and you tell us that you did not spare Jesus Christ so that we could have life, so that we can be spared. So Father, I, I pray that you would, in, you would invite all of my brothers and sisters to come before you in your presence and for us to unload, unload our burdens, unload our failures at your feet and receive your devotion towards us. Receive your faithfulness towards us. Receive your goodness towards us. Receive your son who is a propitiation for our sins and the sins of the world. God, would you help us to believe that Jesus is sufficient, that his blood can wash us clean. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you because we could not ascend to heaven on our own. So we thank you that Jesus came down to us. Jesus, you are our Emmanuel. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.